Welcome to Pathway to Purpose, a podcast designed to help people live life to the fullest, chart their own path to purpose, and learn from the hardest moments in life and go from surviving to thriving. This podcast is dedicated to learning about health, hope, happiness, no matter what challenges you face. You learn to use your biggest challenges to heal and connect to your purpose and mission in life. And welcome to the show. All right. Welcome to the show. I am honored to have uh, Stephen G. Post, PhD. He's an internationally recognized for his work with deeply forgetful people, their families, and allied organizations. His book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, Ethical Issues from Diagnosis to Dying, was designated a medical classic of the century by the British Medical Journal. He's a professor of preventive medicine and bioethics at Stony Brook University, uh, director uh, and founder of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care at Stony Brook University, uh, president of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, and the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award from the National Alzheimer's Association. He's a best-selling author and of this book, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. So Stephen, welcome and thank you for coming on the show. Well, you're welcome, Todd. It's nice to meet you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, for sure. So tell me, just share with with the audience a little bit about you. Like, how did you get involved in all of this work that you've done? Was there something like as a kid, as a teen, or through your adult? Tell me a little bit about how this became a driving passion in your world. Oh, that's rather easy. Uh, I grew up on a lonely street uh along the south shore of long island and there were no neighbors to speak of and no other kids around other than my brother and sister but they were older and they just played with one another so my mother when i was four or five years old would say stevie why don't you go down the street and see if you can find somebody to help so i would go down oak neck lane with my wagon and I met Mr. and Mrs. Muller. And Mr. Muller uh, had retired. He was a wonderful old guy. He was a good carpenter. Uh, so he engaged me in uh, construction, if you will, around his house. And we would, we would make uh, uh, signs with uh, burned into them, uh, poems from Robert Frost, or maybe a few lines from scripture or whatever. And um, then we would varnish it and we would uh, nail it onto the trees. So we had a real wonderful little forest there of wisdom. Uh, and uh, he would give me a nickel every time I helped him with something. And he said, uh, you should save your nickels for college, which was good advice. And so I always noticed when I came back home from Mr. Muller's place, his wife, by the way, made great clam chowder. Um, uh, I always felt elevated. I guess nowadays we call that the so-called helper's high, but there is something 
engaging and liberating about contributing to the lives of others. And uh, that's what I experienced as a kid. And, and, and more or less uh, just imbibed that over the course of my life, uh, never expecting that it would carry on into an institute that studies kindness and giving and generosity and so forth. But that's how it happened. That's the journey. Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. I can remember doing stuff like that and, and feeling good, you know, I'm a nurse as well. And, um, there's something about giving that you, like you mentioned, you get that kind of givers high for sure. Right. Yeah. I call it the given glow. The, the given what, what was that? Given glow. I love that. I, yeah, love I don't that. say, I don't like to say givers glow because givers is too sort of politically loaded from so forth, but given, given glow is really what it is. Uh, and, and I, I think it's very important, uh, to give kindly. So not just to be going through the motions and getting routinized, but to actually have some soul in the game. Some yeah, can you expound upon that? Because I was thinking that like a lot of times we often give and is there some kind of thought that we might receive as, as a result? Does that enter the subconscious mind as we give like tell me a little bit more about that well i i, I think that um ideally um when we give from kindness our emotions are centered in a really wonderful place and our mind is simply not thinking in terms of reciprocity although I must add very quickly, Todd, that um, an, a word of thanks is often much appreciated. Uh, I think that gratitude uh, is important, but in terms of pay it back, that becomes very insignificant when you're in the right place, spiritually and emotionally. I would also say that um, in our culture, well, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, so we'd done a paper on uh, uh, widows and widowers who were happily married for many years. That's happily is important. <laughs> and now they're actually experiencing grief and bereavement because of the loss of their loved one. So um, what we found out is that the ones who can self-report actions of kind giving in their neighborhood through their neighborhood organizations, through their community of faith or spirituality or, or whatever it might be, through the hospital volunteering, people who can self-report that were getting through the period of grief and bereavement more quickly and also in a more enduring fashion. So I got a phone call from an organization in New York of widows and widowers, widows and widowers, New York, and they were having their annual meeting at one of those big hotels in the middle of Manhattan. So I went in there and I gave this plenary address uh, about uh, the in inner benefits of giving. And I talked about all of the science that we have now, um, the release of endorphins, happiness chemicals, 
uh, and a whole lot of other things. Um, and the benefits of getting the mind off the problems of the self, the self and its difficulties, and just kind of starting over through generosity can be very refreshing and emotionally reviving. Uh, and it can contribute, all of this can contribute to happiness and health. Um, and then there was a guy in the back, we had a time for Q&A, and he was really frantically waving his hands. And uh, he, he said, hey, buddy, I don't care what you say. I don't do nothing for nothing. I'm not claiming that New Yorkers necessarily would agree with that. Actually, New Yorkers are pretty generous if you look at the uh, surveys. Um, it's just that they're a little bit frightened of who their neighbor might actually be. They don't have the sort of groundedness in, in community like you do living by the lake. <laughs> you know? So there's that little bit of anxiety that kind of inhibits them. But in general, um, they're very, they're very generous. But this guy, you know, he was part of this um, ideology that's very, very Americanist in some sectors. I don't do nothing for nothing. And, uh, and, and even if you could explain to him until the cows come home about all the internal emotional and health benefits of getting away from self, of contributing to the lives of others, um, he would still say, not good enough for me because I need to know what I'm getting back externally for it. And, and that's, um, that's a hindrance. One of, the, one of the people I knew with uh, Alzheimer's disease in, in Cleveland, I was in Cleveland for 20 years, he had a reputation for being pretty dastardly and, and uh, self-centered. He was diagnosed with probable dementia and uh, lo and behold, he became very disinhibited in his kindness. He was out and about helping people into the van to bring them into the uh, elder health care center. He was very genuine. He was kind to everybody. And somehow or another, I think that bit of dementia had freed him up from the idea that, well, somehow if you're not calculating gains for yourself, you're a sucker of some kind. <laughs> wow. So you bring up a good point and there's a video on your website. And of course, we'll have all your information in the show notes that I actually enjoyed, and you made a reference to recovering alcoholics, right? Yes. And yes. the 12 steps. Uh, I'm, yes. I'm very familiar with the 12 steps. And, you know, one of a lot of the premise is, you know, you have to give it to keep it, right? Yeah. And helping others and freeing ourselves. They talk about it, freeing themselves from the bondage of self, right? Yes, yes. So tell me a little bit more about that, because I, I love watching that video, by the way. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Well, yeah, we did a lot of work with uh, the 12-step programs and published about 40 articles, you know, and we had a big group at Case Western and the Cleveland Clinic and Harvard and here. And it was all about how service, generosity, and spirituality contribute to recovery. Um, I also had people from NYU, uh, from their huge addiction center there who were involved. And we were looking at this from different cultural perspectives. But hey, you know, uh, uh, there's a famous story about uh, uh, the founder of AA, whose name was uh, Bill W., Bill Wilson. This is like 1932. 
And, you know, he's basically living out on the street. He's lost his job. He was a stockbroker. And uh, he, he goes into Bellevue Hospital and they dry him out. And somewhere in, in that experience, he has this epiphany and he sees a bright light. I'm not identifying that with any particular symbol, okay, or personage, but he sees a bright light. And he knows that somehow or another, um, if he can stay with that bright light, he can stay sober. And he never had another drink rest of his life. He got his job back and they sent him to Akron, Ohio. I'm in Ohio and they sent him to Akron, Ohio uh, uh, on a business deal that went south. And he was in the Mayflower Hotel, which is this big old sort of Victorian hotel. And um, his deal's gone south and he feels like he's going to get back to drinking. So he walks into the bar. He sees a, boy, a bar across on the other side of the foyer. And he, and, and he, he asks, the, he's got a dollar in his pocket. And he asks the bartender, can you give me 20 nickels? <laughs> bartender doesn't know what that is about. So he got his 20 nickels and he goes to this telephone booth in the, in the hallway. And next to the booth is a list of ministers on the wall, including the 19th minister, uh, uh, Reverend Tubbs, a Presbyterian. And he's calling these people and he's saying, look, this is the strangest call you've ever got. But I know that unless I can find another alcoholic like me tonight to sit down with and to help, I'm never going to get back to sobriety. So um, this, this Reverend Tubbs said, oh, I've got just the guy. Now, since you're a, a nurse, okay, this was Dr. Bob who co-founded AA, Dr. Bob was was a was a you know quite frankly he was an, an inebriated surgeon at Akron General Hospital <laughs> had a difficult reputation and that was in an era when 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 you could be drunk and do surgery and not get in trouble um, so uh, uh, Dr. Bob got together with Bill, Bill W in the in the uh, home of the family there a philanthropic family uh, and they put together, the 12 steps. But the thing that uh, Dr. Bob didn't understand at first was how the 12th step was really essential, which is helping others with your difficulty, not just all others, although that's part of it. It's kind of, you know, do unto others, but it's especially focused on helping others with whom you share this common experience. So you become, and you, you know this language well, Todd, you know, you become a wounded healer. Yep. So you're drawing on your own experience. You're not a professional, but you're drawing on your experience and you have insights. And, um, uh, and, and so that really became so central to um, the 12-step program. And we studied that a lot. We, we found out, and the New York Times reported on this in the, in the Tuesday Science section, that people who join AA and are rated as high helpers by themselves and by others, um, so they're, you know, busy getting out the chairs, making the coffee, uh, giving testimony, and, and even sponsoring after a certain amount of experience, others into the organization. They actually do a lot better. They have about a 40% recovery rate after a year, whereas the low helpers have about a 20%. So you double the likelihood of uh, recovering over a one-year period in that kind of a program. 
if you're busy helping others. And there's a lot of other evidence to support that. Uh, so we were working mainly with adolescents in Ohio who'd been referred to uh, a special recovery program by the court system. And part of that program involved going to a teen AA. And we found incredible results uh, as uh, you know, in, in that study, which became really quite uh, well known. And now at children's hospitals around the country, based on that work, um, you know, when you have kids who are both, you know, we worked with NA to Narcotics Anonymous. Um, uh, when you have kids who are struggling with uh, uh, alcohol abuse or drug abuse and so forth, um, it's not atypical for the for the children's hospital uh, or the clinic itself to connect them with opportunities to be volunteers and to serve meaningfully. And that seems to be helpful. So we're sort of trying to re invert all the sort of desperate loneliness, this isolation, this uh, crazy loss of community, uh, people desperate for meaning, uh, running on empty kids, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they need community and they've lost a lot of community. So by making that part of a therapy, you can benefit them. Wow, that's awesome. I'm a huge believer in community support groups uh, and, you know, helping different organizations or whatever kind of ailment or thing you're trying to work on. You, you brought up a great point, like with AA, you know, helping another alcoholic and, you know, the 12 steps have been like adapted for almost like for a lot of different things, you know? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> There must be some some validity for sure in that, right? Yeah, well, they have a lot of ancient. Well, they're, it's as old as the golden rule. I mean, you read the Upanishads if you're a Hindu, and the you know first thing you come up with is the positive version of the golden rule, which is not the the negative version. Doesn't require much. Do not do unto others what you would not have them do. That means you can go home tonight, Todd, and if you haven't uh, elbowed some innocent person in the ribs. You can feel pretty good about your life, but that's not requiring a lot. But the positive version, do unto others, um, you know, that's requiring us to use our moral imagination and our creativity and our energy. And that's really, really beneficial. The other thing about the 12 steps, I mean, humility is key, right? So, you know, uh, Bill W. thought that there was a lot of self-inflation in his own experience. Now, not everybody has that experience and there may be gender differences, but he felt that as a guy in the early 1930s, uh, he was completely full of himself and he needed, first of all, to be humble and, and to say, I don't have an answer uh, to this, right? Mm -hmm. And then to rely on a quote, a higher power, which could be the group itself. But then the key thing, a really key thing is the fourth step, which is where you make apologies so you, you, you know, one of the things about uh, AA is that, and, and there have been studies on this, that a lot of people really blame somebody else for something that happened eight or 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And it has never occurred to them that maybe they could have said something a little differently or maybe handled it a little better. And it might not have been all that bad, right? So fourth stepping, you sit down with your sponsor, the person who's supporting you, your sort of special mentor in AA, 
and you uh, you write a few paragraphs. You you know you meditate, uh, and you write a few paragraphs mindfully about um, how you could have handled things differently, and that lets people stop just blaming others for all their problems, right? I mean, I could do I could blame people for all my problems till the cows come home. I bet you could too. Absolutely. Absolutely. But when you, when you own up to that, it's a very, very profound uh, experience. And it, you know, it involves also forgiveness, which is a hot topic in positive psychology uh, and just getting, getting beyond that downward vortex in of negativity and rumination and hostility and bitterness. Because when you are in that vortex this is the, the key thing that AA really got ahead of its time. When you're in that negative vortex, you're stressed out, right? I mean, those are destructive emotions and you're going to be pumping out a lot of stress hormones. And, you know, that's going to be converting metabolites into fatty acids. You're going to have vascular issues. You're going to have slower wound healing. You're also going to have hippocampal atrophy now. So it's stress is considered to be one of the six or seven underlying factors in Alzheimer's disease. Wow. And so a lot of the, a, a lot of the, uh, you know, healthy aging people, you know, they, they want you to walk, have it, ha maybe have a Mediterranean diet, whatever it is, you know, laugh a little bit, but also um, they, um, uh, they want you to meditate and be mindful. And if, if your tradition requires it, prayer is fine too, but somehow have community, have spirituality, because we live in such an age of anxiety, uh, it's in it's a real problem. So so we need to you know so the bitterness locks us into that negative emotionality, and we have to break through it. And the best way to break through it is to just you know learn to let go. Now for me, that's the beauty of giving. Okay, that's why the the title of the book is you know. Um, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the second part of the title uh, is uh, how to live a healthier, happier, longer life through the simple act of giving. So that's why good things happen to good people is the main title. But, but the point is that we have a lot of cases in that book of people who have really suffered in life and uh, been through some shocking hardships. And the best way to get through that, they have found uh, the best way to be resilient is to be a giver. Man, there's so much to unpack with what you just said, uh, Steve. So I'm really well-versed in, in the 12 Steps AA upbringing, you know, alcoholic home, you know, myself partook in, in drinking in college and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. So I had to really change my community, my environment as I was growing up if I wanted to change my life. So I really entered that world and looking at doing the moral inventory uh looking at the exact natures of our wrongs which is humbling and then making amends and all of those things are are super super powerful but yeah. the one thing that you mentioned here is there's the big talk about forgiveness right and you mentioned it in your book and i i want to i want to pull an excerpt uh from from this it says um you, you write in here and I recommend anyone get this book. It's really awesome. I was like really just kind of 
floored by a lot of the data in here and a lot of the points. So going to the book, it says giving to others helps us forgive ourselves for our own mistake, which is the key to a sense of well-being. Tell me a little bit about your own mistake and the forgiving part of that. Like that hit me like a rock for sure. Well, to quote MLK, (laughs) uh, those who make no mistakes make nothing. Okay. And um, I'll tell you, you know, teaching in a medical school for, well, you know, going on 40 years now, Chicago, Ann Arbor, Michigan case for 20 years and here for 14, you know, um, nurses and physicians make errors. And how do they cope with that? Sometimes it's very difficult. There's, there was a story a few years ago in the New York Times about a nurse who felt that she was responsible for the death of an infant in the PICU. She had no community to debrief with, to share with, and she actually killed herself. And that was very sad. And um, I remember a case, not here, of a resident, a medical resident who uh, just missed a diagnosis that was perfectly obvious, a diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism. But he just hadn't taken the time to stop, look, and listen to the patient. Okay, he'd been reading the, 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 the data that came out of the computer down the hallway. So he had a little factoid, but he hadn't actually encountered the patient. And, and she came back the next morning and she had died of a pulmonary embolism. And uh, he wanted to quit medicine. This is a really great young guy. And, uh, uh, and so we had a little powwow with uh, some individuals who were fairly seasoned and uh, First thing I said to him, we listened, of course, for quite a while. But then I said, you know, you're going to make mistakes. Those who make no mistakes make nothing. And uh, uh, and we talked about that for a while. And it really helped him to think that he doesn't have to be perfect. Because, you know, in AA, I mean, perfectionism is not welcome. It's the spirituality of imperfection. And, and, and so, um, you know, what he found, I know, is that by getting back into practicing and practicing with a special kind of kindness in his heart and really trying to be empathic and an attentive listener and also humble. There's, you know, humility is, is like, you know, there's, there's, there, there's no kindness without humility. I mean, that's the AA thing is that if you're not, if, if, if you, if, if the opposite of humility is you puff yourself up, you fill the whole room up with me, myself, and I, so there's no room for the other, right? Right. And um, and so um, that really by focusing not on his own error, but on what he could do to help others with the passing of time, he got past this and is practicing medicine very successfully now. But that's the whole thing is that, you know, you have to expand the campus. Okay, you're going to love this story. Can I tell this? This is a, this is a Yeah, I love stories, Steve. <laughs> I love stories. So, so, you know, Sir John Templeton and I, we founded this institute for research on unlimited love, pure unlimited love. So it was very spiritual. And I did that in Cleveland in, in uh, 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 the year uh, 2001. It's still going strong. 
it's not the same as I do in the medical school, but but it's it's a separate entity. And and so um, lo and behold, there, I, you know, there was a lot of press coverage. I mean, I even did a daily show. John Oliver did a whole program basically because he didn't believe in unlimited love. So he was like completely shocked. It was a riot. And um, so I get to Stony Brook and it's, it's 2008. I've been 20 years in Shaker Heights, Ohio, in a ring suburb of Cleveland. That's where we raised our kids and stuff. And here I am. And I, you know, I, I've got to be successful here. And they, you know, they're investing a lot. So it's raining like hell one night. The first night we got into Long Island over the George Washington Bridge into Stony Brook to the Three Village Inn, which is right along the North Shore, probably looks out over Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was raining like crazy. And the lightning was so bright and the thunder was so loud. And then my son, who at that time was about 12, and my wife, if they realized as they looked at the mildew, <laughs> they realized we're not in Ohio anymore. <laughs> And I've got to tell you, man, I, I had, that was the worst night of my life as a husband and a dad. And there was nothing I could do. So after about a half an hour of just listening and being mindful, I said, you know, I have no solution to this. We're here. But let me go out and get a pizza. <laughs> so I drove out in the Toyota on 25A, you know, and, and I went to Little Joe's Pizzeria in, 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 uh, and Port Jeff actually. And, uh, uh, it was raining like crazy. And I walked into this pizza place and in the foyer, there were two newspapers on the, on the stand. One of them was the three village Herald, which is a news, a little newspaper I'd never heard of. It's all over the North coast of the North shore of Long Island from like Orient point all the way into, you know, Manhattan practically. There was only one Caption, one big headline on the front page. Unlimited love comes to Stony Brook. (laughs) (laughs) And this cup reporter, I still have an email from her on my wall right here. Uh, It was so memorable. Uh, She had interviewed the dean of the medical school, who who was a pediatric trauma surgeon, good guy. And he said, "Well, well, you know, we're hiring him to teach medical humanities, compassionate care, bioethics. We don't know too much about the unlimited love stuff, but that's okay. You know, we're, well, we, there'll, there'll be boundaries. And then they interviewed my department chair. She said roughly the same thing. So immediately I knew these were pretty tolerant people. <laughs> and and um, so the next morning I called the president of the university who had, hi- who had who wanted to hire me, Shirley Kenny, And I said, Shirley, did you read that uh, article in the Three Village Herald? And she said, yeah, I did. I said, what'd you think of it? She said, well, I'm not sure, but I did get some phone calls. I said, who gave you calls? She said, I got calls from emeritus professors and they were mostly male. <laughs> and then they said, what did they ask you? She said, well, she said, what kind of love are we talking about? <laughs> and then the next day I was, first, first day at work, I'm coming up the escalator in the middle of the medical school. And there's this really nice guy, Moshe. And he's he sort of sounds Eastern European. He looks a little bit like Mr. Clean. He's wearing a, you know, he's got his arms crossed. And he kind of looks down at me and I think, who is this guy? And I asked him, sir, do I know you? And he said, are you Dr. Post? And I said, yes, sir. And then he said, I'm sure having read the article, are you going to save us? 
<laughs> so this is like a you know a nationally known biologist. And I said, well, I'm not sure about that, but I'm happy to meet you. And then we got, I had a conversation. He was, happened to be a clarinetist and a violin. He was a violinist, actually. So we had a nice conversation and I see him around and we're good. But, but that was uh, an interesting moment. And the point is that you have to expand the canvas. Sometimes moments happen in life, Todd. And, you know, for all your listeners, you know, uh, mud hits the floor like a Jackson Pollock painting. Yeah. I could use another metaphor, but I won't. But yeah. the mud hits the floor and it doesn't look like much. <laughs> and, but by the time he's done um, meditating and covering it up with all these really vibrant lines, you know, it's in the museum and it really is a work of beauty. So the thing about life and giving is that giving is the way you expand the canvas. So, so, so that was a difficult beginning. And the other thing was that the president of this university coaxed me out of Cleveland because she said, Governor Elliot Spitzer is going to be very helpful to you. He's going to, he wants you to develop your program across the, all the medical schools in New York. And that same evening in the pizzeria, the other paper on the rack was the New York Post. The front page was Governor No More. And there was a picture of Elliot Spitzer <laughs> in his socks and his underwear. Oh. And you know what happened? With, and it said, Governor No More. So, so I, so I said, I said to, to Shirley, I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to get that much help from Governor Spitzer. She said, no. <laughs> but you didn't, you didn't come soon enough, right? Didn't come soon enough. So, <laughs> well, you, you, you always have having to expand the canvas, and the only way to expand the canvas is through kind giving. And if you just do that and have confidence that with time things will heal, and by giving, you know, you've got your mind. On, the, uh, on other people and on what you can do for other people, when you fulfill that kind of mindset, then um, you get freed up from uh, the challenges and the negativities and you can be much more resilient. So you mentioned kind giving, right? Specifically yeah. versus giving to get something back. Is that kind of what you mean about that? Well, not quite. I mean, you could give and have no consciousness of payback. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like, well, you're a nurse. I mean, you know, um, in in the health professions, um, a lot of people get into them and they really want to be kind. Simple kindness. You know, they want to have a gentle curiosity about the patient's background and their narrative, you know, narrative medicine and all that kind of stuff. They want to they want to treat the patient as a person and not just as a biological specimen, if you will. And, and they're very sincere about that. But then um, what happens is the healthcare system itself, depending on where you are, you know, sometimes it just drains that out of you. Yeah. And it's, you know, the end of the day and you just don't have it within your soul to be the kind of practitioner that you really want to be. And that's a kind of a marker of potential burnout. So you need to be stepping back and gathering yourself and forming community. Uh, we have Schwartz rounds here, which I, which I direct where people from all these professions come together and they talk about the challenges of caregiving and uh, what the obstacles are and how sometimes they've been out in the parking lot in the evening uh, at their steering wheel crying because of X, Y, or Z. 
So we bring people together to form a community and galvanize their commitment to empathic care. But that's the battle. The battle is, you know, how can people still find meaning and not just be going through the motions? Mm-hmm. And so, 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 you know, you, you, you can just be going through the motions and it's so empty. You may not be thinking about reciprocity at all, but if you're just going through the motions, it's not going to last. If you you're think? just going through the motions. Gotcha. Yeah. There is so much, I, I, I'll tell you, we could probably talk all day, but I have, I, I was looking, you know, getting back to forgiveness, right? And I, I hear about this a lot and I'm sure, you know, and you touched on it earlier in our conversation. I'm going to take an excerpt from the book. It says, forgiveness is a challenging form of love when we've been harmed and sometimes so deeply it can fear feel nearly impossible to let go of outrage anger and grief vengefulness is enticing there is almost a lust to eradicate those who have transgressed against us grudge matches are notorious between families clans and countries this natural tendency is seductive but we end up reliving the original harm a thousand times yeah, because every time you re- every time you reenact this, go through it in your mind, your emotional response is continued. And there is a real strong human tendency to eliminate one's adversaries and those who have done damage. Um, you know, most people in their life at some point or another have been bullied or picked on or they've been betrayed. Uh, Human nature is not one-sided. There's a wonderful side, the Buddhists will tell you this, there's a wonderful side of human nature full of compassion and kindness and and, and joy and, uh, um, and mirth and so forth. But there's another side of human nature that is uh, kind of... uh, a seething, boiling cauldron, you know? Yeah. And that's why, you know, you need to be mindful and meditative to try to keep all of that under under the surface or be able to process it in conversation professionally or with a good friend who wants you to stay on the right path. But, uh, yeah, so um, that's a very, you know, uh, uh, Vengeance is a very, very deep thing. That's why in the in the Hebrew Bible, um, the first time we actually come across the notion of love your neighbor as yourself, um, I think it's in Leviticus, it's very clear. It says, do not seek vengeance, but love your neighbor as yourself. So it's like, it, so, so th- it's, that's actually a prescription it's a prescription right there you know rx love your because 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 it's going to get you away from that bitterness and that hatred and that desire to do something that you'll probably eventually be sorry about anyway and as aa would tell you you probably don't have a very good perspective on it and that's that, that's huge is really understanding the perspective on it. I, I was going to ask you my follow-up question to that. And I think you just answered it. 
is for those that are struggling with forgiving like this horrible transgression, right? Like whatever that may be, you know, how would you kind of suggest somebody to start to soften it? Cause it's easier to easier not to say, okay, just let it go. Like I remember years when I was younger, I'm like, how do you let something go? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that simple, you know? Well, you know, so forgiveness is a, is a big part of positive psychology along with, you know, kindness, awe, creativity, happiness, all those kinds of things. And, you know, uh, there's been, so if you go back 25 years ago, there were only five articles in medical and nursing journals on forgiveness. Now there are probably five or 6,000 in good peer reviewed journals. And you see it in the American Journal of Public Health that, you know, middle-aged guys who are unforgiving or more susceptible to lung infections, you know, chest infections, which is true, you know. So, um, you know, the time has come to, to cultivate these positive assets. But I think that a lot of the research um, on forgiveness, um, oh, oh, research on gratitude is also very strong too. But um, the research on forgiveness can be a little bit um, superficial. Mm -hmm. It's like somehow there's this easy three or four step thing that you go through. You know, it's like I never believed in Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying. I actually met her in Chicago uh, once upon a time long ago in about 1979. And um, I just don't think stage theories work terribly well because okay. everybody's different, you know, and and all the cultures are different. So you, you really want to sort of put stage theories on the back shelf, including if you're a nurse, you know, just put, it's okay to have them there in your hip pocket, but you basically want to realize that expect the unexpected mm. and people are going to go through their own journey. And uh, it depends on who they are and what they are and where they've been and, and what their perspective is. But um, yeah. So, so for me, um, the deeper approach to forgiveness is the one we take in the book, you know, which is basically, you, you know, first of all, have confidence that with time, the brutality of the, of, of the really deep hurt, you're not talking about easy hurts. Right. You're talking about really serious stuff. Serious. It is really serious stuff. And everybody, I'm sorry to say this, just about everybody experiences some really serious stuff. Some of it is completely debilitating. So, I mean, I want to take that more seriously than I think sometimes the forgiveness therapy does, although it can be helpful, you know. But in, in, in my view, um, uh, the best thing to do is just, you know, have confidence that as, as time passes, you're going to see things a little differently. Doesn't mean you're going to feel that you were that you you were responsible and they weren't because they may have been primarily responsible or in, almost entirely responsible but you can think of it a little differently maybe you can just realize um a lot of times it's realizing who they are what they've been through i mean there's a saying you probably heard this hurt people hurt people yep yeah you know and and 
you know, I say that to medical students, I, you know, because sometimes they get around a, a clinician who's a very bad role model and at the end of the day and they're being nasty to, to everybody in, on, on site. And, um, and, you know, my response to that is, well, you know, they probably had a really difficult day and maybe their kid who's 15 uh, overdosed the other day and is in the intensive care unit, which actually in one instance occurred. So, you know, they're under a tremendous amount of pressure. So you have to kind of look at it from their experience and, and, and not, not to justify or excuse anything, but recognize that they've had their hardships too. So hurt people, hurt people. That can so that's one thing that can soften it a little bit. But also just have confidence that as time passes, you know, you will you will get a little less aggressive about this. You won't quite have the sharp elbows. You know, you'll kind of have moved on a little bit. <clears throat> And, 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 and the more you can engage yourself in a functional community and benefit others actively. Yeah. I mean, I found like, you know, after, after my experience with the New York Post and the Three Village Herald, I, was <laughs> like, I said, oh my God, I gotta go back to Cleveland, but it was too late to go back. I could go over the George Washington Bridge and head west on Route 80, which is my favorite highway. I mean. How was I going to do that? I was already here. I'd quit my job at Case Western Med, and, and here I was, you know. So what was I going to do? I, I wasn't a happy camper, but I entirely. But but I but it wasn't the end of the world. And I realized that the more I invested in building a center here, we have a, a nationally awarded center for medical humanities, compassionate care, and bioethics. Even Alpha Omega Alpha. The National Medical Organization gave us the most prestigious award in medical education three years ago for uh, curricula and professional identity formation, which was all about positive psychology. So I really threw myself into things. And my wife, she got a job in this in the grade school across the street just as a assistant in the in the uh, in the first grade, and she loved doing that in Ohio. She loves she's still doing it now. So she was throwing herself into things and my son was throwing himself into things. And so we found that, that and we did a little volunteering as a family, okay? Not, not as, but as a family, you know, what's, what's a cool project? And, um, and so if you can keep your m mind off the self and the problems of the self and the resentments of the self mm -hmm. and be excited about what you're doing for others, have confidence that time will pass and also that you will, even if it was an absolutely horrific, egregious thing that happened to you, you know, you'll um, you'll gain perspective. Just even if it's just philosophical perspective on on suffering in life, you'll you'll gain perspective. I love that because you know I you know I find time also certain experiences in life. You know, some of our biggest challenges could, I found, wind up being our greatest, can be our greatest gifts, you yes. know? Yeah. And, and here's a sidebar, right? When you go back to Ohio, are they like, oh, you're a New Yorker now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, to, I have to tell you that, that in, 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 in Cleveland, 
No one's ever said, I don't do nothing for nothing. <laughs> Although I'm sure they have. <laughs> They've just never said it to me. I, I've been in Connecticut all my life and I used to travel. I worked for a lot of companies and did some presentations across the country. And I noticed when I left like greater New England area and I went like down south or out west, like I'm like, oh, my God, they're more calm. They're like, you know, they're like everything's like different. I'm like. They're looking at me like I'm like out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, you can't believe it. You can't believe it. So, so we, you know, every once in a while, um, students from around here, and these are people from like Queens, and I and I love. Don't don't get me wrong. New York's a great place. A lot of great people there, but but they don't have communitas. And and you know, by the way, Connecticut and Ohio are linked because it was the Connecticut Western Reserve. Ohio was basically an extension of the borders north and south of Connecticut West. So I was at Case Western Reserve named after Connecticut and, you know, and the Mather family from Connecticut was there and all of that. So, so I do think there's something nice about Connecticut. I have to tell you that. Um, but uh, it's just to, you know, let your listeners know, but <laughs> on the other hand, when, when our students, like they went down to New Orleans after Katrina, and they spent a couple of weeks there on some on, on a spring break, and um, they came back and we had a debriefing about forty or fifty students, and I asked them, so what did you notice down there? And they said, you know, people were gently curious about one another. <laughs> They'd never seen anything like it. They actually were were kind, and they took the time to listen and to slow up a little bit and to. And to be there, and it was real, it was palpable. It wasn't just a make-believe thing. And, and, and they had never experienced community in that sense. And, and I feel as though um, this is a real, a real problem. And when you couple it with, uh, 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 you know, say, you know, two years of being locked down in COVID and you're not getting those kinds of social opportunities anyway, can be a very, very um, difficult thing uh, in terms of mental health. Yeah. But I believe in, in, that's why I'm a Route 80 guy. You asked me where I'm from. <laughs> you didn't actually. But I wrote a book called God and Love on Route 80. And uh, it, it's all about synchronicity and, uh, you know, you know, dreams and even going out to Reed College where Steve Jobs slept on my floor. So, I mean, I've, I've always been out and about and, um, you know, Cleveland was great. You know, I, I can't really say enough about um, the, the spirit of many of these uh, towns and cities that are between the coasts. And I wish that there wasn't so much uh, bias in one direction or the other. Yeah. You know, it's very it's very fragmenting for the nation. And I, I'm an honest believer in um, in the American family as a whole. You know, I, I think we can have a community and I'm I'm saddened that sometimes the acrimony gets so out of control. Uh, but uh, I think we can we can get through this. I think so, too, especially with. You know, a lot of the work you're doing, the, the one area I wanted to touch, we haven't even touched yet. Yeah. 
and you mentioned it was gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, other than kindness, I think gratitude is the core because, you know, kindness is an everyday thing. You, you know, you don't have to be reading German about empathy, <laughs> you know, long sentences that go on for a whole page is crazy. You know, yeah. just to understand what, you know, and, and all the details of empathic interaction and, and reflecting back and, and this and that, you know, people, people, people say, Hey, kid, be a little kinder. You kind of know what that means. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know? And, 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 and it's, it's a lot easier and you can be kind. It doesn't take a lot to be kind. I mean, during the, I was, I was in this place every day during all, all the pandemic period. And, and um, I made a point of, there were some nurses. Okay. There were some nurses. They had been, they had been reassigned to sort of take temperatures as folks came in the building. Yep. And and they were in this in the at the end of this long long hallway out back, back from the garage, and they just after as the day wore on they looked so isolated and so lonely, and and so sad and so I made a point of going down there from my office at least once or twice a day, and telling them dad jokes, <laughs> you know like I would these are just you know, one was African American another one was you know Hispanic and someone was white and I was, I would say I would say. Um, this was one that went well. What did the fish say when it swam into the wall? <laughs> Damn. Or things along those lines. Because because one of the chapters in the book, you know, in, in Why Good Things Happen, is on humor and laughter. And you can change people's whole disposition, their whole attitudes toward life in a millisecond. We use that word, millisecond. Yep. Just by laughter. And so I make a, I made a point of going up and down the escalators a couple of times a day and just telling medical students these silly jokes. I would, nothing embarrasses me. My wife will say that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, that's important. So kindness doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take uh, an in-depth knowledge. It just says, you know, look, I'm going to pay a little attention. I'm going to hold the door open for you. I'm going to speak a little bit with, with you instead of just walking by. And it, 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 again, it, it's not it's not depth, it's not therapeutic, but just everyday kindness, just having a gentle curiosity about the people around you in your office or in your family, you know, yeah. that's really key. And 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 the other the other positive emotion that's very easy to understand is gratitude. You know, so I, you 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 would not necessarily know this, but I helped Sir John Templeton. Uh, uh, get going in positive psychology. I, I was there when he was introduced to Marty Seligman uh, in 1998 at the Marriott Hotel in Philadelphia on Market Street and Broad. And, uh, you know, Sir John had written a book called The Laws of Life, you know, sort of wisdom stuff, you know, uh, kindness, generosity, forgiveness, creativity, love, and so forth. And he, he wanted a good scientist who could work with him on these things. And so I had known Seligman a little bit. And Seligman was famous for learned helplessness huh. in dogs. Like if you beat up a dog enough, at some point, it's no longer going to get up off the floor. But, you know, so that's that's OK. It helps you understand depression maybe in some ways. But um, he wanted to go positive. And Sir John wanted a really all-star scientist. So they got together. And then... In 2000, they had the first Summer Institute of Positive Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. 
And I was there with the Chick Sent Me High, had written Flo and all these great people. And, and, and I was just like the, the low man on the totem pole, but they wanted me there because they thought I could bring sort of a philosophical perspective, but they were all high shots. You know, I was not that way. Um, and um, so, you know, Sir John, um, you know, he, he really wanted to study gratitude. He thought kindness and gratitude were like, and humility were the three biggies. And so uh, they actually started a gratitude. Uh, I was actually involved in that grat gratitude center at UC Davis with a wonderful psychologist named Robert Emmons, Bob Emmons, who wrote a book called Thanks, which was a bestseller. And that's when they, you know, they had adolescents who would just uh, take, say, a half an hour, one day a week, like maybe on a Sunday afternoon. And they would write a reflective journal on the two or three things that they're most happy or most grateful for from that week in their life. And then they, you know, they study them. They give them some little surveys and, and, and they can get some meaningful results after about six weeks of this. It does take a little time. And it's somewhat of a lasting effect, too. And, 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 and so then the New York Times, not long after Bob did that, was running an article um, in the magazine section. Uh, not that I worship the New York Times, don't get me wrong, but uh, they they were they, they they ran a beautiful article about about how adolescents are happier and protected from anxiety and depression if they're cultivating a little gratitude. So an attitude of gratitude is not a complicated thing. I mean, most people say, you know, you could be grateful. Okay, say thanks. <laughs> I mean, now, of course, someone can be over your head with a bat. You know, that does not, not very authentic. But, but we, need to, we need to get back into the basics of, uh, you know, thank you, you're welcome. Just simple expressions of gratitude uh, would go a long way to uh, elevating the texture of our culture right now. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, you talk about it in the book, but I, I like to do like s purposeful gratitude in the morning. You know, mm -hmm. is that something you recommend? Like for somebody out there who's like, listen, <laughs> give me some tip on gratitude. Um, I know that a lot in the recovery world, they're like, hey, make a gratitude list or do things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, what are some simple things to cultivate ongoing gratitude? Well, you, you know, you, uh, you've said it all right now. I mean, I think, I, I think if you are purposefully engaging in gratitude, it's a good thing. The question is, how do you do that? How do you actually operate? Now, I, I want to hear your, your, your comments, but I'll tell you, I have a practice. I think that's where spiritual practice comes in. So I'm usually up every morning. And uh, usually about 5 never later than 5.30. And, uh, you know, I'll take a shower, but then I will just sort of sit back for a half an hour and I will kind of be mindful about the day in front of me. And I kind of know the, all the people I'm going to see. I actually keep a big old-fashioned book like this, you know, <laughs> my, of my appointments. And, and I sort of know what people need, you know, and... Um, and so my definition of love, which is taken from a psychiatrist uh, at Chicago uh, named Harry Stack Sullivan, when the happiness and security of another 
is as meaningful to you as your own, you love that person. No Greek, no Latin, it just kind of holds. You can think about a deep friendship, you can think about looking over the crib of a child or a grandchild, you can think about you know, having a feeling of commitment to a patient. Uh, it just kind of works. When their security and their happiness is as real or meaningful to you as your own, sometimes more so, doesn't have to be, um, you love that person. So that's, um, that's what love is about. And then the, but, but the thing is people are nervous about the language of love. I mean, is it love of designer genes, love of chocolate, whatever. Right. Oh, what kind of love? Romantic love. Right. Yeah. All that. Right. Okay. Sex love. Right. All that. No offense. No offense. No. <laughs> uh, so I, I like, I love humor, you know, but that's, that's absolutely what happened. So yeah. it's amazing. So, so, um, you know, you want to, um, you want to envision, um, the major people you're going to encounter. Um, so like, you know, I, I knew, you know, I was going to see people at, at eight o'clock this morning and I knew that one of them, um, has lost a loved one. So they need some compassion and I need to approach them with a kind of openness and then ask them how they're handling it and invite them. That's an expression of love. So compassion, we're comfortable. That's an expression of love. Forgiveness is an expression of love, right? Um, all those, mirth can be an expression of love. When I'm going down telling dad jokes to the nurses on the floors, you know, that's an expression of love. Creativity, I mean, I, I may know I'm gonna run into somebody who's having a really hard time with a creative project and I'm going to help them maybe through their their problems with it. There can be a lot of things that we do um, that are expressions of of love, including loyalty. Right. So I'm a big believer in loyalty. I've been married forty years, you know, uh, and I'm and I and and not to not to compare myself with anyone else, and I don't. And I think there can be good reasons not to continue with a relationship. But I'm sort of a stickler on trying to be loyal sticking with people because you know um uh it's like the aa thing uh we're, we're all imperfect and and if you if you stop a relationship because somebody has flaws that you find uh no longer tolerable just take a look at yourself yeah. i mean that's the bottom line you know and so the, the spirituality of imperfection you know, and, and acceptance and tolerance, that's part of love too. And and the pursuit of justice, Martin Luther King wrote about the love that does justice. And, you know, you know, as a nurse or as a healthcare professional, when you're committed, let's say geriatrically, you're a geriatric nurse, you're committed to the well-being of uh, these individuals. And you can be empathic and compassionate, which is, again, those are expressions of love. But, um, if they can't get the medicine that they need for less than $15 billion. Right. And some pharmaceutical guy just built a mansion that's worth, a, you know, $20 billion on the coast of, uh, you know, Lyme or whatever. Right. Uh, you, you know, I mean, you, you, you at least want to be an advocate. You want to write a letter of advocacy to the pharma company and say, we really do think this is an essential drug. 
for this patient or something. We, you know, we teach our students to do that. So it's the, at a certain point, unless you advocate, unless you're a bit of a justice seeker, you really can't love adequately. So there's a lot of different expressions of love that people mm. are more comfortable with. Um, and kindness is, 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 is a care, just being a care. I mean, nurses are caregivers. Care, care is, an ex, is a particular expression of love. It's not quite compassion because compassion responds to suffering, but just being caring to people in a, in a generous, generous and genuine way, that's an expression of love. So love does make the world go round. It's just that people get a little antsy when they hear the term. It, it's funny that you mention it because when I was when I was reading your book, I was looking at it. I'm like, oh, yeah. and you start to get this feeling about love. I'm like, oh, all right, all right. But I'm going to share a little bit about my story just to kind of illustrate yeah. some of your some of your points. So about two years ago, it's a little over two years ago. Out of nowhere, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, I went to a small community hospital. Um, just kind of random stuff. I was working with patient, had some vision thing. And my doctor was like, my primary is like, you should come and see me. And of course we're busy. You don't think anything's wrong. So he talked to me a little bit. He said, we'll do a carotid ultrasound and all that. Uh, that's the way the insurance will pay for it. So if something happens, he goes, just go to the emergency room you know, something weird. And I had some friends, I like to do mixed martial arts. It's kind of my little side thing. And mm -hmm. I was getting tuned up by a friend who's a chiropractor. And he goes, man, why didn't you go to the ER? You know? So he kept telling me this stuff. And so I wound up going to the ER, just my hand felt a little weird. It was just strange. I went for a run around the lake. So I go down there and I'm thinking they're going to say, Hey, Todd, you're working too hard, right? Like, Oh, I'll be in and out. I call my girlfriend. I said, you know, I'll be in and out. So I go into the scanner, neurologist says, you know, says, you know, hey, they want to add contrast to the scan. I'm like, oh boy, this can't, this can't be good. So I get back to the ER bay and the doctor and the nurse walk in and I'm sitting there just like I'm talking to you and they go, you know, you're not crazy. You got a marble sized tumor in your head. It was like the gut punch for me. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this is part of my story. And I would have said the same thing they said, but I'm mindful of it now. And I go, this, this sucks. As like a couple tears come down. And they looked at me and they go, I'm so sorry. And I was like, and I felt like, and then all this stuff happened. Like, you know, you got a neurosurgeon come, you got all this stuff. The thing that mattered the most to me, like, I started to deal with it where like the people that transported me to the like tests, they admitted me or the, the aide that came in and cleaned my room or they just talked to me. They're like, wow, you know, you say the story and that meant a lot. Yeah. Just yeah. conversation with somebody like, and somebody was doing like a, of course they test me eight ways to Sunday and they're like, Oh my God. Like, they started to just ask me questions and hear my my story. And it was just this profound experience. Of course, it was crazy. You know, I could go on and on. But the one thing that I asked, which I thought was divinely inspired in my life, was I'm like, what's God trying to tell me here? Mm -hmm. Like with this experience, I eat really well. 
Um, and I ran, I do all this stuff. But the one thing that I didn't look at was stress. And and hence, I named the, the podcast Survival Mode. I felt like I was living my life in survival mode, like with the foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. And I started to really look at that. And I realized like early on, you know, having some trauma and stuff, it created this level of stress in my world. And I really started to deeply look at it. And I wanted to, I, I noticed this feeling that I got of sharing, not just a brain tum tumor story, but a lot of different other stories in my life, right? And I started to bring people onto a podcast. I got the inspiration for the podcast. Mm -hmm. So how people have overcome some challenges and some of the things they've done. And I found it amazing. Like after the podcast, people felt so much better sharing their story. Mm -hmm. Back to AA again, right? They right. share their story, right? So I'm fascinated by this conversation because there's so many like benefits and different types of giving it, it you know would you view sharing your story as giving yeah well this is your creative giving right doing this podcast and um you know your your mind is on your audience you're thinking about questions to ask you're you're um moving in in a wonderfully fertile and creative direction. And, um, you know, fortunately, you know, you, you've, you've recovered from your challenges, but, but this is a great, uh, a great way of living, living and creativity. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's so important. And I think, I think your message, you're a messenger now. And, you know, I mean, you all, you know, you, you radio folks, podcasters and so forth, you, you know, you look at people like me as important. I actually look at you as important, more important, because you're the ones who are, um, you are transposing this or conveying this to the wider public. And you don't always get um, the appreciation that you deserve. I appreciate it. I haven't really thought of it kind of in that way, but you're right. You know, you're giving, sharing a message, hoping somebody, you know, I do, you know, I hope somebody mm -hmm. could glean out of your conversation today, something that will change their life, make their life a little better and start to become happy or start to cultivate some of these things that we talked, that you talked about yeah. as far as, as happiness. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think it's great, you know, the work that you, you've done with this. And I think there's a lot. My question to you, though, there's another question. You mentioned something about gratitude and, and kids, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're starting to, like, I'm starting to date myself, right? <laughs> I'm getting a little older, right? And you're like, when I was a kid, right? Now I'm starting to notice these kids. Are you starting to study this younger, the generations here? Like, yeah. um, you know, like, you know, there's people that are more entitled. I see some of the, you know, my girlfriend's daughter with some of that. And I was like, you know, are you starting to see that in this, like the effects of it, or are they less apt to be 
giving tell me your experience with this i'm just well it's, it's really hard to make generalizations right uh, i gotta tell you that i as far as the the new medical students now i've been in medical education for 40 years and um i gotta tell you that they are incredibly kind and in general i think more so than what i experienced 30 or 40 years ago I mean, you know, first of all, they're all going into debt, yeah. you know, and uh, they're in a system that where they are employees now and they're not self-employed and they have to deal with all of these kinds of complexities in the healthcare system, which can be very um, dispiriting. But still, they they're here for a reason and they they are on the whole, extremely empathic and compassionate and well-motivated. Uh, so I like to see that. I think there's been a real upswing in that, in that regard. You know, the younger folks, I think, you know, they do amazingly generous things. Some of them are absolutely outstanding. There are also those, it's sort of, you know, one third, one third, one third by a recent study, you know, so there's the one third of the, of the, of the, young teenagers, you know, 13, 14 years old, they just really rock and roll when it comes to being kind givers. I mean, they just live for it and they do incredible things and they make YouTubes and they get on TV. I mean, they're just phenomenally entrepreneurial about love and generosity and kindness. And, um, and then there's another third that are exactly the opposite. I, they're the, I don't do nothing for nothings, you know, and uh, they may not come around, even with service-based education and learning, they may not come around until they have some sort of a midlife crisis. But there's a middle third. And that middle third will engage uh, somewhat reluctantly in, say, service-based learning uh, in the high schools. But, but a light will turn on for them. Right. I mean, it, it, as, as they get involved in this, they're, they're like the people who go down to New Orleans and Katrina, you know, I mean, they realize, hey, you know, there's a different way of living. Right. There's yeah. a, this is like when you go out and you do your talks around the country, there's there people, people live differently and the light will the light will shine and they will be surrounded by this warmth that they haven't necessarily experienced before. Uh, maybe not in their families and whatever, whatever it might be but they'll come into it. And, um, and so that's, the, that's really important too, but it's not like one particular third, they're all pretty much equally present. And, and, you know, the best thing you can do is, is, um, is help that middle third see the light and then hope that that recalcitrant third uh, does too. Uh, but it just may be a little more difficult and they may have to go through some hardship. And you mentioned, I was just going to follow up with that hardship, right? Like, you know, you look at, at the, one of the things I looked at when I had a brain tumor is like, I could potentially die here. Right. Mm -hmm. So I like looked at death, right. I studied it. I started to look at stuff. It was kind of strange thing I did, but I did. Cause I figured, Hey, if I, I want to look at what's what could possibly happen. But I was looking at, like, I watched a series on the history channel, the Bible, and, you know, I was on kind of steroids to reduce that. So I had some, you know, emotional stuff, but I sat there and I looked, I go, there was a tremendous amount of suffering yeah. 
You know what I mean? That they wrote about. And that kind of goes to developing resilience, you know, like what getting up after getting knocked down or dealing with some challenges. Right. Like how do, what's your take on that? You know, I don't, there's something theologians call theodicy. Why did God let this happen to me? I think it's an insane question. Right. I do too. Because, because, because stuff happens to everybody. Right. And, and, and the question is why? So if there is a loving supreme being, whatever your tradition might be, you know, if, or if you don't have one, you just meditate down at the corner under the under the chimes, you know, um, this uh, ultimate reality. We're here in this life, thrown into it. We had no control over where we ended up. You know, uh, we're just placed here, and there's gonna be a lot of suffering. Yeah, just accept it. And the only relevant question is, how can I develop through this? You know, like I, so I, I got to tell you, you know, this will shock you, you all you East Coast. I, 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 I've never been happy to have left Cleveland. <laughs> I, mean, I have a, I have a Browns jacket. Okay. Everybody else wears it. I have a Browns jacket. And, but, but, but I don't suffer with it in a palpable way every day, but you know, there's a side to me. That that's where a lot of my closest friends are, where the parents of the kids who are on my son's soccer team, you know, and so forth, my daughter's teams, where they live. And that was our community. That was our home. And uh, so, you know, there's a certain amount of suffering that just comes with the reality of living, even making a move uh, at certain points in your life um, can be challenging. So suffering, you, you know, everybody's going to lose. We're all in the process of dying. You know, and you you learn that very vividly, and 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 so um, loss and suffering are are there, and and you know what the what the Buddhists are useful for, I think, is telling us, you know, why do we suffer? You know, so I I was actually out in in uh, Vancouver, Canada, at the Dalai Lama Center, and which is the only North American Dalai Lama Center that's sanctioned by His Holiness, who endorsed my book on Alzheimer's Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, which came out about six months ago. And um, and Victor Chan, who's like the right-hand guy to His Holiness, he, I was talking about this and, and, and how I, it was, you know, like just a year or so after we'd moved and I was still adjusting and I was somewhat uh, 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 feeling that I had to reattach to my environment and, I felt separation, anxiety, and all the things that people talk about. And uh, Victor Chan looked at me and he said, you are too attached to Cleveland <laughs> in a very strict sort of Chinese style. You're too attached to Cleveland. Yeah. And, 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 and I realized right there, he wasn't going to put up with my garbage. <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, I'd even written a little book called The Hidden Gifts of Helping that touched on this, you know, how you can manage uh, uprootedness by helping others and build community that way, which is true. But he still said, you know, you were too, you were too attached. And, and so was my attachment. It wasn't necessarily the fact that I had moved or moved my family or, you know, walk into that pizza place and seen those newspapers in the, in the thunder shower. 
<laughs> but uh, or or you know or that I had a, a famous scientist telling me, "Are you going to save us?" You know, <laughs> I mean, I actually I didn't suffer so so I I I, I view things with a certain lightheartedness. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very serious about life because there is suffering and people are hurting, but I also believe that we need to have a lightness of being. We can't just be laying it on people all the time. It gets old, it gets boring, it gets heavy, and it's not productive. Right. Um, uh, and I say that to all the political activists. It's okay if you want to be an activist, you, you have a good cause, that's fine, but don't browbeat people. Right. You know, I, agree. I mean, give people a little space to breathe and be spiritual about it. And, and, and laughter is not sinful. That's how I healed. I, I, I honestly, in my life, have attribute humor, you know, to yeah. a, a lot of that. And um, yeah. and I love the things that you you talk about in your book. And I I know I know we're almost out of time. If somebody is struggling, you know, maybe having a hard time getting through stuff. What one or two things would you recommend? to help people kind of cultivate this giving, loving, you know, kind of space. What, what would you, what would you recommend? Well, just don't ever give up on it <clears throat> because there were, there were, there will be times, there'll be days. Everybody has these days. Look, I mean, even when I get up in the morning and I do my, my practice, you know, it, there, there might still be a guy on, who, who, who stops at the yellow light and holds me up for 15 minutes to get into, into the medical school here. And I still may fall full breasted on my horn and yell out an expletive. I'm just being honest, you know, Sure. I, nobody's perfect. And we have, to, it's, but, but, but then, you know, you feel badly about it and then you want to come back into the right space, but you ha you're going to have to have to be very purposeful and have a method to keep yourself in a, in a good place. And that really means practicing kindness and love, being creative, being grateful. These things are as good for you as they are for the people around you, and maybe in some places even better. So um, you just have to keep it up. And the other thing is I have a favorite saying, which I will wrap up with, uh, from Eleanor Roosevelt. That dates me, actually. She, she was probably dead before I was born, but Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, uh, I, you know, I guess we're all a little bit worried about the future of America. We're a little bit worried about it. Yeah. And, the, you know, the world seems a little crazy. And um, she said, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. So you have to have dreams. You know, you have to use your creative imagination. You have to dream about how you can contribute to the lives of others and to the lives of your community and to our nation and to the world. And you have to believe in the beauty of your dreams. And, 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 and if you stick with that, you'll be okay. It's when we doubt, we lose confidence in our dreams. We lose confidence in the better side of our human nature. Because we've been reading too much Freud, too much Sartre, too much, you know, uh, whatever it might be, you know. But if you really, if you really look at the science, that's why I've studied the science of giving so much. If you really look at this, 
the science is on the side that we are really quite wired toward giving. And we need to get that out, get that word out. And that's what um, Why Good Things Happen is about. You know, it's stories, but it's also some science and even a little uh, survey for yourself, you know. Yep. Um, and and I think that's um, that's a really important genre. It's not just self-help stuff, but it's, you know, it's got to be based in some facts about what we now know about human nature, including from the Yale Child Studies Center, where they figured out that actually kids are not just nasty, natural born, evil knievels. <laughs> <coughs> no, I'm not, I don't, no, I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, they're, 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 there's, there's like wonderful warmth and a natural born empathy that they've measured in toddlers and even, even one-year-old infants, you know, where they, they, they really can, can be concerned about the travails of, of, of their peers. And so that's what uh, the Yale uh, Child Studies Center does very nicely. And, and, and that's, that's a shout out for, for, for that particular entity, which our, which our institute funded, by the way, way back in like 2001, 2002, uh, out of Cleveland. So I think, you know, how we tell the story of human nature makes a difference. But whatever it is, whatever you're doing, and you're all doing good things, everybody out there in, in, in podcast land, but just believe in the beauty of your dreams. Have a beautiful dream and believe in it. I love it. Steven, thank you so much for coming on, sharing about your book. And I encourage everybody to get it, read it, start practicing it. And um, we'll put everything in the show notes here. So thank you so much for coming on, Steve. It's a pleasure, Todd. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay. I got to run. <laughs> okay. I'll see you.